episode of Ankle Surgery Update, Science Guiding Treatment. Today we're especially excited as we got another interview coming up. This time we got Dev Mahadevan with us. And maybe we just give him the chance to introduce himself and then give us a brief overview of the study he posted just recently in the Bone and uh, Joint Journal. Dev? Well, thank you, Sebastian and Hans, for the kind introduction and invitation to discuss our recent publication on Achilles tendon ruptures. So I'm Dev Mahadevan, based in Reading, which is about 30 minutes outside London. So we've got a rather busy trauma unit with a catchment area of about 500,000, but lots of hospitals locally and lots of foot and ankle heavy trauma. So I'm really excited to be part of your podcast. I think this is a very nice technique of promoting orthopedic research, and I credit you guys for all the hard work. So in terms of our paper, well, we investigated the outcome of patients with Achilles tendon ruptures who were treated through functional rehabilitation. So the main objective of our paper was to assess whether the size of the Achilles rupture gap and this was measured in equinus using dynamic ultrasound on presentation, whether that gap influenced patient-reported outcome measures. And the outcome measure that we were most interested in was the Achilles tendon rupture score, or I will abbreviate it to ATRS as we go along. So what we did, we looked at 131 consecutive patients who were treated using the functional rehabilitation protocol, so my protocol, which was introduced in 2016, roughly involves one to two weeks of being in an equinus cast and they're allowed to touch weight bear. And then they go into the vacopad boot. And with the boot on, they are fully weight bearing and they start progressive dynamization over nine weeks. So in terms of the follow-up, every time the boot was changed in terms of its range of movement, they had a face-to-face appointment in one of our trauma nurse clinics. And obviously, they were taught some physio exercises to go with. And once the boot was removed, however, all subsequent follow-ups were undertaken via the telephone. So they were contacted at six months and 12 months post-injury by the trauma nurses to go through their ATRS questionnaire. So overall, we had complete data on 82 patients. So if you look at the mean ATRS score, it is 76 And this is at a follow-up duration of 20 months post-injury. So the biggest finding we found is that the the gap inversely affected the ATRS with a Pearson correlation of negative 0.3. We also found that the ATRS scores were lower in patients with gaps of 5 millimeter or more, and then certainly lower again if the gap was beyond 10 millimeters. Our overall re-rupture rates were really low. We had two out of 131, so that gives you approximately 1.5%. Now, the other secondary outcome measures that came out of this was we noticed that if you are over 50 years old, you generally had a lower ATRS scores. So we were trying to work out why this was the case. Now, if we start doing sub-analysis of that group, what you will find is that in the over 50s, about 50% of these patients do not undertake physical activities such as running, jumping, or hard physical labor. So these activities were not routine for them prior to the injury or after an injury. So we looked in them separately. And if we then apply a seven-item ATRS, where we exclude these three items, age is no longer an independent factor. So I think what it shows is that 
it really depends on what your pre-injury physical activity in terms of your outcome rather than age by its own. The other thing we found was that the females had a lower ATRS score, but in our series at least, they seem to have larger gaps. Not sure why, but in our group, there's a difference between male and female with females with larger gaps. And if we again normalize the gap difference, gender does not make an influence again. So overall, we concluded that a tendon gap of more than five millimeters is a useful predictor of lower patient-reported outcome measures, especially in the physically demanding individuals. And if the tendon gap is more than 10, and this may affect the lower physical demand patients. Now, obviously, this is a, almost what I call a stepping stone study, because I think you really need to show whether if we control for gap size, whether surgery, because if you look at most RCTs or trials that have come out there, they haven't actually done a matched group analysis where the non-operative and the operative group have equal gap sizes. So I think there's a good potential RCT to be undertaken in the future, which will clarify that issue. So I hope that summarizes it for you. Thank you very much, Dave. The study really, we had great fun reading your study. I think the sample size is awesome. And you do tackle one of the most important issues that have been missed for years. Actually, they are twofold. First of all, to actually apply a functional rehabilitation protocol to non-operatively treated Achilles tendon ruptures. And second of all, to actually go for the gap size and try to identify subgroups that do benefit from a non-op protocol compared to operative protocol. In your paper, you actually do drive an important point that back in the years, re-rupture rates were the predominant outcome parameter that everybody looked at and that was kind of what you had to stand up against. And, and nowadays, with non-op as well as operative treatment, re-rupture rates are getting really, really low, just as you showed in your study, independent of the, or semi-independent of the gap, actually. And the focus is rather coming towards actually the patient-rated outcome or the functional outcome. So you assess the ATRS score. Do you think measuring any other objective measurements, such as actual maximum plantar flexion strength, would have an additional benefit for a previous study? No doubt. I think these additional measures would definitely help plantar flexion strength, and there are lots of tools that you can actually use them, you know, to isolate the TA in terms of strength and extrapolating the data. And we know that some studies have actually shown that your plantar flexion strength at six months potentially is quite predictive of what happens in the long term, although I suspect that's quite early based on my experience. Now, this is where the study design comes into play. Because these patients were reviewed as telephone follow-up patients, we didn't have the opportunity to physically see these patients to perform any physical tests on them. Now, from another study of mine where we are looking at those questions specifically for FHL tendon transfers, we've been trying to do this via the telephone and it's not very practical. So we abandoned that project of you know, trying to see whether patients can be assessed via video conference, for example, and see whether they can fatigue in single heel raise or not. But from our study here, because it was predominantly a telephone follow-up, we were not able to do any physical tests like that to show that. But it would definitely be an interesting thing to look at, especially for the higher demand patients who are probably sprinters or jumpers, where that plantar flexion strength is of use. But I really like the idea that you were comparing the level of activity post-trauma and pre-trauma, because I believe this is actually 
the objectified measures might be of interest, as you said, in high demand people, but in, so to say, everyday life, the patient satisfaction, is the patient able to perform whatever he was able to perform prior to the injury is one of the most important aspects. So I did like this. I have a question. I think in Scandinavia, they do perform non-operative treatment and functional non-operative treatment very frequently. And they, this is at least my understanding from the studies I've read, they regularly see the patients during the course of the non-operative treatment. In the beginning, even twice weekly, and then later once weekly, and they regularly perform sonography to see whether there is an increase over time in the tendon gap. Whenever they see an increase in the tendon gap, they consider converting to a surgical treatment. Did you perform any sonography follow-ups or did you somehow objectify the tendon gap over time as well? So the answer to your question is the, there's only one ultrasound scan that gets performed in our series, which is usually three to five days of presenting to, to our unit. Unless there's a reason to have another scan, and that reason is if, let's say, someone is failing to progress, you know, once they've completed the whole functional rehabilitation, we would not image them again. And the reason for that is, now I do understand the paper you're talking about from Scandinavia. I think it's very operator dependent, and I think it's very hard to ultrasound or even MR these Achilles tendons when it's healing, because you, you start forming this hematoma in the gap, and that hematoma is really quite hard to quantify once it starts becoming tendon-like. And the concern I have about doing dynamic scanning in these patients is that, you know, if you give it to a sonographer or a radiologist, they will start sort of moving and loading your tendon. And I'm not sure, and potentially my view is, you could cause iatrogenic lengthening of a healing tendon. So if the test is not accurate, in my view, if the ultrasound is not very specific or sensitive, or the MRI is not very specific or sensitive, my view is do not ask for trouble. You know, we know that we've got a good closure gap. So technically speaking, because you've held that position for so long, you know, you would hope that the tendon would heal in that position. I got another question regarding the functional rehab protocol. I think what we have learned in the past five to 10 years from predominantly the surgical studies is that if we want to improve the patient rate outcome, if we want to improve especially the function, the strength, the endurance, those functional protocols were the game changer for the operative treated Achilles tendons, at least. The functional rehab protocol you applied is a functional protocol, but it is not the most aggressive one that has been published so far. We had a look at the literature. We actually published a systematic review on that, and our functional protocol is a little bit more functional. To be honest, we predominantly apply to surgically treated patients. We do treat a lot more patients surgically. We might come back to that later. But we have them wait bare at day one. We have them in the queenness for only two weeks. And then we start having them with a free range of motion from zero to 30 degrees of plantar flexion for another four weeks. Do you think a more aggressive functional rehabilitation protocol would have had any effect on your cohort or any effect on the app size as your primary parameter? I think potentially, yes. You know, I, I think, I mean, the only way, I mean, the only way to know for sure is if we have a case control series <laughs> and we've got two, you know, similar population and we put them into two arms and we see what the ATRS 12 months is. But saying all that, I think when I started this protocol, now I took over the foot and ankle practice here 
when they were still putting patients in plasters. The really traditional way of three weeks in equinus plaster, three weeks mid-equinus plaster, then plantigrade, totally non-functional. So I have definitely, no doubt, my protocol is quite cautious, certainly on the conservative side. And my initial thought about putting them in an equinus plaster with touch weight bearing was to allow that hematoma to consolidate, you know, and then keep the gap as close as we can. Now, is that evidence-based? Not really, but it's just a process to start the, the ball rolling. Now, there are several protocols like this in the UK, and we know from quite a large series in Leicester, which is sort of midlands of the, the middle part of the UK, and they dropped their protocol by two weeks. So they reduced the duration of the boots, and they found no difference in the ATRS scores or the re-rupture. So yes, I think a shorter duration, more aggressive protocol is something I'm looking at already. And the actual reason why I'm looking into that was actually COVID-19. So when it kicked in around March, you know, our plaster technicians were not available. We, we didn't have the chance of putting these patients into an equinus cast. So we used to lock them in a fixed 30 degrees from day one, weight bearing straight away. And, you know, yes, early results, but so far, no issues at all. No re-ruptures, you know, and, and I think time will tell. You know, I'll get the scores in six months and probably I am heading that way. I think their patients do better by earlier movement and earlier weight bearing. Now, what I'm not sure though, and I think this is where I think further trials are required, is what's more important? Is it movement or is it loading the tendon? Because my concern about introducing movement early is that the ultimate issue with Achilles tendons is over lengthening. And I just wonder if you start introducing dorsiflexion movements, whether the tendon starts stretching out. Again, only be found out 12 months later, you know, when you see the ERS scores. Yeah, so that's very true. And the, these two aspects, the mobilization and the weight bearing are the two major aspects. So in Germany, uh, we perform surgery on most patients, actually. This is probably from traditional point of view, but also uh, since the introduction of minimal invasive techniques, the complication rates have dropped significantly. We are using the Dresdner technique. I don't know if you have heard about it. And this technique is appealing from my point of view because it does two things. It's uh, percutaneous, so it does not open the hematoma. We do not open the rupture site, so we do we perform a small cut, one to two centimeters far away from the rupture site. We don't open it. First and second, there's no sural nerve complications reported because we introduce the tool between the fascia and the peritendinium. So therefore, sural nerve injuries can basically not occur. And this is also what the study shows. And furthermore, wound healing issues are not a problem because the incision is one to two centimeters at most, and it's probably three to four centimeters proximal to the rupture site. And therefore we are not afraid anymore to operate on elderly, on diabetic patients uh, whatsoever, because the complication rate is so low with the Dresden instrument. And thereby our idea is that we ensure or we reduce the risk of tendon lengthening during, during the functional aftercare. When I read your study right, you're saying functionally ATRS is better for patients with a smaller gap and is worse with, for patients with a larger gap, namely larger than five or even 10 millimeters. Would you consider from your point of view, would that be patients which might benefit from such minimal invasive techniques, including then a functional aftercare? 
Yeah, no, I totally appreciate what you're saying. And I still repair Achilles tendon ruptures. I do use a percutaneous technique, but I do not use the instruments that you use, you know, as a three-stab incision, but I do go through the rupture site. But it's basically, again, you know, keeping the skin bridges healthy and touch wood, low soft tissue complications by far compared to the traditional open technique. So in our protocol, so as an example, during the same study phase, we had 148 patients with complete ruptures. The vast majority, 131 underwent functional rehab and a small number, 19 underwent surgery. Now, we discuss surgery versus functional rehab with all patients. And we go with the evidence out there. We look at what functional scores you can achieve. We do also mention that theoretically in surgery, you may have an increased plantar flexion strength. So if you're a higher demand athlete, you may notice some difference, but it's something that I cannot say to every patient that, you know what, you're going to see this difference by having surgery. So they get the time to decide. And some of them choose to have surgery. The vast majority in our series tended not to. Now, in terms of the gap, and I was actually speaking to a colleague of mine today. Now, I do not know because I, there are a few patients where I've done the percutaneous technique. And when I open the rupture site, there isn't a gap. <laughs> now, am I just repairing something where there isn't a gap with some suture material? Or am I genuinely reducing the gap? So the question I have is, is a gap on presentation the prognosis rather than what you do to it? So, for example, I cannot explain why some patients in our series had a gap of 43 millimeters. And this is an acute TA rupture. 43 in equinus. Now, why is that? These are senior radiologists that do my ultrasound scans. And yet we find a gap of 43. And then we've got the other spectrum, which is zero. So what's causing it? And I can tell you for sure that the higher gaps have actually got excellent scores. You know, so it's, it's really bizarre, you know. And is it the accuracy of ultrasounding potentially? But I think my question I have for you guys, and I don't know the answer is, this is my next study, by the way. I hope you guys don't beat me to it. But it's basically, we scan everyone. And then anyone beyond five or 10 millimeters, we randomize them to surgery or functional rehab. And then we have a group where we're controlling the gap size. So we can say anyone with a gap of 10 millimeters that we put down the surgical route what is your ATRS at 12 months? And then we've got the other group, 10 millimeter gap. We go through the functional rehab. What's your ATRS at 12 months? And I think that's the only way you will know for sure that surgery, with the hope that you reduce the gap, will improve outcomes. Because I'm not sure. That is an awesome study. And I'm sure we're not going to beat you on that one. So you don't have to be afraid. It's <laughs> <laughs> multi-center, multinational study. Yes, that'd be awesome. Are you going to have the same rehab protocol in place for the uh, non-op and op group? Yeah, so for me, it's both protocols. So in, in my unit, um, they go through the same process. So let's say you've had your perk repair, then you go into a back slab for the first couple of weeks just to allow the soft tissues to settle, and then they go into a boot. So for me, they're virtually the same both ways. And what about you guys? Do you have a different protocol for your surgery or, or are, you, are most of your surgically treated? Most of ours are surgically treated and the aftercare for those is rather progressive, I would say. They perform immediate full weight bearing, fixed equinus for two weeks. Starting from week three, we allow 
30 degrees plantar flexion to zero degrees in the boots, again with full weight bearing. And this for another four weeks. And starting from week six, week seven, we take off the boot and that's it. So for the non-operative treated, we apply more conservative aftercare, more what you're doing. We start reducing or giving range of motion beginning from week five. So because right. we are a little more afraid, I would say, because we don't have that much experience with the non-op treatment, we are probably a little taken back. Maybe I have one more question. Maybe that's going to be the last one for that interview. But first of all, I was really excited that you're actually using a Bavarian boot. The Vakopitas produced in <laughs> Bavaria, actually, pretty close to, to Munich. So that was a good thing. I knew I was talking to you guys. <laughs> thanks for supporting the bavarian uh, economy <laughs> but let's learn something from you i think what i read you have those virtual fracture clinics that's a system we don't have in germany at all i know that in the scandinavian countries they are trying to centralize surgical treatment or any more specialized treatment in a few clinics and this is what the whole virtual fracture clinic system you report in your paper kind of sounds like to me as well. Maybe you can just outline for us on what those virtual fracture clinics look like. And then how do you assure a certain standardized protocol? How do you ensure the quality of, of the data you get from other clinics, other doctors to base your decision on? The virtual clinic, I mean, it is it's not mainstream in the UK yet, but a lot of units have adopted it. Now, I think there are lots of advantages to the system. And I think like in a lot of new protocols, there'll be some pros and cons and a lot of jittery fingers initially about the quality of the referrals, the quality of the decision-making and how you go about smoothing that process. So why was the virtual fracture clinic set up? I think that's the fundamental question because traditionally in the UK, if you go to accident and emergency or to a minor injury unit, they used to be seen the next day within 24, 48 hours in the fracture clinic. So as you could imagine in bigger units, you know, we're talking about hundreds of patients who turn up and most of these patients do not need to be seen straight away because firstly, the whole limb may be too swollen or too painful to actually examine properly. And a lot of the injuries do not need any follow-ups. So one of the main objectives of having a virtual fracture clinic is to be able to triage these patients and bring them into appropriate clinics. So for example, you know, if you have a soft tissue knee, you're just wondering whether this is a twisting injury or you know, is this a partial ACL or a full ACL, bringing them back 24 hours later for a clinical assessment, I think it's very hard to do because the knee is too swollen. So what we do is we'll say, rest the knee, we've provided the splint, ice it, and you know what? We'll see you in seven days in a specialist clinic where you'll see a knee surgeon who will assess you and appropriately investigate you through an MRI scan, etc. So what the net effect from this fracture clinic or virtual fracture clinic is you reduce the number of patients in fracture clinic and you also put the right patients in the right clinic at the right time so you can make the second decision there and then rather than bringing them back unnecessarily. In our unit, for example, we've got a very busy accident and emergency but we also have three minor injury units around the region, and they all feed into this virtual fracture clinic. A lot of patients can get discharged. For example, if you have a volar plate avulsion injury of your finger, we do not see them. They get discharged with hand exercise therapy, etc. But let's say you get referred in. We have a clinic set up where 
as a x-ray machines uh, or screens available for all these patients who've been seen in these units. We also get the history sent to us and that's all done electronically with mode of injury, what were the clinical findings and what or how the patients have been immobilized, boot, plaster, splint, etc. And what they've told the patient, you know, if they say we found a fifth metatarsal fracture, we've asked them to do this, we go through that information. We look at the x-rays and then we either tell the patients directly to say, look, not happy with this, we found another injury, please come back and see us. Or the diagnosis is right, we are happy with the plan, you will be discharged from the clinic from now on because no further treatment is required. But we obviously have these fail-proof methods where they can contact the virtual fracture clinic at any point if they are not progressing well. Maybe one last, really last question <laughs> on that. But who's paying for that? Who's paying for your time? So it is part of the job plan. So for example, the patients that are assessed virtually, we get the same tariff as seeing them face-to-face. So the hospital gets paid the same amount because it's still a consultation because these patients are all contacted by the nurses after the meeting. So let's say I've done my 60 patients and then all 60 patients will be contacted by the trauma nurses to say, this is the plan. Your x-rays have been reviewed. The plan is to see you in two weeks or the plan is to discharge you, etc. So we still get paid the same amount or the hospital get paid, gets paid the same amount. From a consultant point of view, it is part of our job plan. So rather than being in fracture clinics, seeing patients, I'm doing a virtual fracture clinic in that same session. And for me, it's much more productive. I can see 60 to 70 versus maybe, you know, 30 patients face to face. This is a great system. In Germany, we really have to think about those virtual fracture clinics or any way on how to improve the standards of more peripheral hospitals and the quality of treatment that you have somebody who's experienced in that field, maybe review the x-rays, maybe see another injury that has been missed. That is awesome. Dev, thank you very much for your time. It really was a pleasure talking to you. Again, congratulations to your studies. And I'm really excited to read about your RCT. So we're going to be stoked and maybe you'll find the time uh, to talk to us on that study as well. Yeah, excellent. Well, thanks for your time.